I am Oleg Nestisoliason and this is a little preamble for an episode I recorded a while ago. The episode includes a rather lengthy introduction about the then-current volcanic eruption. When the episode was supposed to be posted to the public feed, the eruption just died out. I thought to myself that I should just record a preamble, like the one you are listening to now, to explain the situation. Then we bought a new apartment, had to sell the old one, moved a few hundred meters. That was a lot more work than I had imagined. As a part of this, I am also moving out of the studio I've been using for a few years, and into a basement room that comes with the new apartment. That has also been a more lengthy process than I had hoped. The final puzzle piece was finding the power supply for the audio recorder. Though I still need to do a lot of work, I hope I can go back to writing scripts as soon as possible. Though there is no volcanic eruption as I am recording these words, There might be one when it reaches your ears. This pending eruption might be more dangerous than those before. One likely spot for the eruption is within the small town of Grindavik, which is close to the Blue Lagoon. The whole town has been evacuated. That means that a little under 4,000 people have had to relocate. That is about 1% of the population of Iceland. Before the town was evacuated, it had been hit with near-constant earthquakes for hours. These were not huge destructive quakes, but they might have done a bit of damage because how close to the town their point of origin was. A few friends who live in or near Grintavik have described feeling what is known in English as disembarkment syndrome. That is how people who have been on ships or boats feel when they are on solid ground after they have grown used to rocking back and forth. There is also the possibility that the eruption will be off the coast of Gretavik, which could lead to a whole different scenario, including asphalt, that might make all sorts of troubles. Honestly, I would think very carefully about any plans to visit Iceland while the uncertainty lasts. Now we will go back to the episode as it was recorded during the summer when I was just warning people about a fairly benign eruption. Welcome to Stories of Iceland. There is yet another volcanic eruption. This is the third one in as many years. I think I've said this a few times already, but this might very well be the start of a decades-long period of eruptions. Geological history is full of such examples. The site of the current eruption is not far from the previous ones. The lava has even overlapped at points. For context, the eruption is somewhere between the airport at Keplavik and Reykjavik itself. 
If you're planning on a trip to Iceland and want to see fire pouring out of the earth, I have to impress upon you to follow instructions carefully. Safetravel.is is a good starting point. You should also follow instructions from volunteers and staff who are working to keep visitors safe. One thing seems to be different this time around, and that is the level of dangerous gases. Historically, the major threat to human life during a volcanic eruption has not been the lava itself, but rather this air pollution. This makes the wind your ally. In the unlikely case that you find yourself on a calm day in Iceland, you might take that as a sign for you to avoid going to see the eruption. You should also keep in mind that gas sometimes pools at lower ground. People with respiratory problems should be extra careful. That reminds me of the days leading up to the eruption. There were constant earthquakes, not big ones. Most could only be measured by seismometers, but from time to time you could feel the buildings shaking. Google seems to think that they are equipped to give advice to Icelanders during such events. They sent out alerts to Android devices. One thing that caught my eye was their advice for people who smelled gas in the aftermath of an earthquake. Google explained how this could indicate a damaged gas pipe and the importance of turning off the gas. Of course, there are no gas pipes in Iceland. Some people use gas to cook, mostly to barbecue, but in those cases there are tanks of gas. If you are in Iceland and smell gas after an earthquake, the actual reason might be a volcanic eruption very close by. So this advice from Google is, frankly, garbage. Before I begin to sound too much like a scolding teacher, I will instead become the teacher who tells you a nice folktale with a very dubious moral lesson. As always, thanks to my supporters. You can join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. There's also a way to support the podcast on PayPal through storiesoficeland.com. Special thanks to Brianna, a friend of the podcast. But this is Stories of Iceland, episode 52. It takes too long to fill the souls of priests. Iceland is in the North Atlantic. Its capital city is Reykjavik. Did you know that in the past, Icelandic workers had one opportunity each year to change their employment? Before the introduction of the Gregorian calendar in the year 1700, that date was Rudmas, the 3rd of May. Afterwards, the date was shifted to later in the month because it better fit the rhythm of the working seasons. 
Many listeners might think this is just a meaningless bit of trivia, a tangent from man who goes off on many of those. In this case, it is actually relevant. But not just yet. Today, I am returning to the folktale collection of Jón Arnason, which was published in three volumes back in the 1860s. There was once a promising young man who fell in love with the maiden. He asked for her hand in marriage, but she declined his offer in no uncertain terms. This greatly saddened the man and caused him to avoid the company of other people. During one lonely walk, far from any dwelling place, he was surprised to come across another man. While the lovelorn youngster wanted nothing more than to avoid this stranger, it became apparent that the other was of a different mind. When the newcomer's friendly greeting was met with a dispassionate and aloof reply by the young man, he seemed to know exactly what was wrong. The stranger proclaimed that the sadness he sent was quite obviously caused by problems in love. More than just diagnosing the young man, he offered a solution. The stranger said that he would arrange for the maiden to change her mind. Instead of denying the young man's advances, she would instead mirror his feelings. For this, the stranger asked only one thing that the next year the young man would become his workman. The lovelorn man gratefully accepted this offer. They parted ways, and the younger one returned from where he had come from. Soon after his return home, he met the woman who was the object of his affections at church. Her attitude seemed completely altered. In fact, it looked as though she had become attracted to him and sought out his company. For him, this was so unexpected that he suspected that he was being mocked. After a time, he realized that the woman had indeed had a change of heart. They quickly became betrothed and married soon after. Their union was a happy one. As time passed, the husband began to ponder the deal he had made with the mysterious stranger, it preyed on his mind, and as the agreed-upon date loomed closer, his anxiety heightened. The question in his mind was who this supposed benefactor actually was, and what it meant that he was to become his workman. A month before road mass, the day which workers changed employment, the young man finally sought help. He'd went to his priest, told him all that had transpired, and asked his advice. The priest confidently declared that the mysterious stranger had been the devil himself. He also claimed that it was much too late to do anything about the matter, though it might have been different had his help been sought out sooner. The young man was understandably terrified and desperately pleaded, asking if there wasn't anything that could be done. The priest finally yielded and came up with a plan. He summoned a group of people to a large mound. He then ordered them to dig, to remove all the earth inside, and leave only the hollow shell and a small gap at the top. 
When rude mass was upon them, the priest took a cylindrical saddlebag, which is known in Icelandic as Saul or Sol. He removed the wooden support at each end of the bag and propped it open at the bottom with a cross. He then arranged the soul upright over the hole at the top of the mount so it looked almost as a chimney top. Then the priest explained his plan to the young man. He should meet his business partner at the top of the hill and make one more demand before taking on the role of workman. The stranger should fill the soul with silver but added the stipulation that the treasure had been fairly earned without causing harm to anyone. If he failed to fill the soul, the contract would be void. Now the priest left the young man to see through the plan. A little while later his business partner arrived and did not appear as friendly as he had during the first meeting. The young man now enacted the priest's plan by asking the stranger to fill the soul with silver. This demand seemed so trivial to the devil that he quickly accepted and went off to fetch his silver. He returned shortly with a large sack wet from the ocean and started pouring the money into the soul. When he had emptied this bag, he left again and returned with an even larger sack. Of course, this did not work either. When the third and then the fourth attempt failed, the devil was more surprised than angry and walked off, never to return, muttering, It takes too long to fill the souls of priests. The young man was quite relieved to get out of his deal with the devil. He then split the silver equally with the priest. They lived out their lives happy and rich, never wanting for money. I imagine you've heard this type of story before. The two main elements are outwitting the devil and winning love with supernatural means. We can take this story as it is, but we can also deconstruct it. If you actually look at the story, you might notice that the young man is not much of a hero. He is foolish and can't handle rejection. This is a type of person we know from the real world. The moral of the story isn't exactly great either. The priest does look quite clever, but it seems odd that he didn't tell the young wife how she had been fooled. If the priest felt that he had no right to tell the woman himself, he might have demanded that the husband should explain the situation to his wife before enacting the plan to save him. The people who actually dug out the mound aren't mentioned again. They don't seem to have gotten their share of the silver. Their labor was simply exploited by these two men of dubious moral character. The story itself revolves around wordplay, which doesn't actually work in English. And that actually makes it a weird choice for me. As you hopefully remember from the tale, the Icelandic word Saul can both mean a soul or a type of saddlebag. Before the translation, I knew this theoretically, but I wanted more information about how this bag would have looked like. My search failed to yield any images. These 
souls don't seem to have seen much use even in the 20th century. I have looked through the central catalogue of Icelandic museums, and none of them seems to have managed to preserve a bag of a type which is prominently featured in a fairly well-known Icelandic folktale. I did find descriptions of the bags and photos of similar ones. A soul was often made from seal skin. It looked quite a bit like a cylindrical sports bag. On each end there was a round piece of wood, and the bag was opened and closed using a flap that could be fastened by tying together two metal rings. Why this type of bag was called Saul seems to be a mystery that linguists have not yet solved. This story does have a relevance which goes beyond the subject matter itself. The title is more famous than the tale. It has in fact become a saying. Whenever a priest or a group of priests are seen as greedy, the refrain is... It takes too long to fill the souls of priests. The saying is actually a little more pithy in Icelandic. I don't think this was intended by Jón Árnason or others involved with publishing the story. I could imagine that in the oral tradition this story might have been told to subtly transgress against societal norms, where the local priest was the main authority at a time when the power of the church was at its height. People could hint that the priest might not be as holy as they would like others to believe. Now this is pure speculation on my part, but the line seems a little too perfect to be entirely without an extra layer of meaning. Well, that is it for today. Thanks to all my supporters from Patreon, including... Sean Pigeon, Jace Nosten, Vida von Helstare, Emily Cooper, Evan Williams, and Jon Helgeson. Special thanks to Brianna, a friend of the podcast. Join them at patreon.com slash stories of Iceland. I am Oleg Nestis Oleason, and this has been Stories of Iceland, episode 52. It takes too long to fill the souls of priests. Thank you.